So let's pray, and um, we're just going to get started. So Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we're so grateful for family and for community and for what you're doing in this church and what you're doing across the world and watching as there's a resurgence of the truth of the real gospel of how you desire love and freedom and transformation and acceptance. And you're creating communities and pockets of communities all over the world where people are understanding this and creating true places of, of unity and places of freedom. And we're so grateful to be a part of the great moves that are happening around the world. So tonight, Lord, we're asking as we open up your word for just a moment, that you shed light, that you would cause our hearts to grow in deeper understanding, that you'd enlarge our capacity to understand you and your nature. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have been enjoying Won't You Be My Neighbor so far? Um, it's only been two weeks. We still have two great weeks left. Um, it's only going to get better and better, and we'll continue to get better and better. And next week, we just did our branding for our next month's series, which I will not tell you because I will not let the cat out of the bag, but it's going to be even more awesome. And so we're just doing great things here at Light City, so you should feel good that you're a part of the cool things that we do. Um, so I want to start this morning with a story um, because I, I like telling you a little bit of my life. Uh, and the story is that when I grew up, for uh, my parents moved into their house that they live in now, probably when I was like five or six. And uh, when we moved there, right away we realized that we had a gift and more than just the house, um, but we had an amazing neighbor. This guy's name was Joe Bones. And for those of you who've been around, you know Joe Bones because he somehow finds his way into every family party, every leadership get together. Somehow Joe finds his way into these meetings. Um, he was something that we didn't know when my parents first moved into the place, but very quickly he became family with his barbecue sauces uh, and all the cool things that he did. And one of the things that was so amazing about Joe is he loved to give. Now, you have to remember, the time when mine and Joe's relationship really began to blossom, I was a punk teenager, okay? And one of probably the biggest mistakes that Joe Bones ever made was he allowed us to go into his garage and use his tools at our leisure. Whenever we needed a wrench, a screwdriver, you name it, this guy had the tool and he freely would allow us to go in and use those tools whenever we would want. Now, this was a huge mistake because being a 16-year-old teenage boy, I pretty much forgot to put away every single tool that I borrowed. I mean, still to this day, I think that the majority of my tool set actually belongs to Joe that I have inherited. And so, you know, he would, we would borrow the tools and I would use his stuff and he'd be looking for it and he would know Alex took it. And so he would come over and he would knock on my parents' front door and him and my dad would have to go into the garage together to try and sort through all the tools to figure out what was Joe's. And the majority of what my dad had was Joe's. And so Joe kind of always left with this large bag full of tools, probably once every three months or so as he took back all of his stuff. I mean, it seemed as though at some point in life, it was almost daily that Joe was coming over to our house. Now, if I was Joe personally, I would have punched 16-year-old me square in the face, okay? I would have changed my garage code, I would have cut ties, and I would have been done with me. But you know what made Joe such an amazing neighbor? Was that no matter how many times I forgot to give him back the tools, he never stopped giving. He never changed the codes. He never kicked me out. He never asked me to leave. He'd never stop serving me 
and by extension, our entire family. Now, here's the deal. He was a 65-year-old man probably at this point when we had first developed our relationship, and he probably should have stopped me. Should have told me that I lost my privilege. Should have told me that if I don't put away that next tool, then I can't use any of his other tools. He should have been made. He should have changed the garage code, but he just never did. He always just loved me. Every season, every tool, every mistake, every problem. I scratched his cars. I broke some of his tools. But it was as if anything that I did, nothing could change the way he felt about me. Still to this day, whenever I see him, he embraces me like a grandfather. He hugs me. Now he loves my daughter, and my daughter and him are developing this relationship. For all intents and purposes, Joe, even though we're not blood relatives, Joe is my family. And you know what's so beautiful about this story is that I didn't deserve to be loved like that. But being loved that way by Joe, it changed my life. Now, you may have never had a neighbor like Joe. Chances are you didn't. He was a one in a million. We tried to move, but we couldn't move. Not because we couldn't move, but because we just couldn't leave Joe behind. We knew that we'd never find another neighbor like Joe. And so my parents have lived in that house, I think, for close to 30 years. And it's all because of Joe. Maybe you moved around a lot. And so because of that, you never had the opportunity to develop a deep relationship with the people who lived around you. Maybe you had a mean neighbor and you borrowed his tools one time and he cussed you out. Maybe you've never felt as though anyone has or would ever sacrifice for you. But this is something that I do know. I do know that each of us desires to be loved deeply. To be loved with a love that goes beyond our failures, that goes beyond our humanity. Someone to love us whether we feel as though we deserve that love or not. And that's really what as we talk about, won't you be my neighbor? You know, we have all the cool stuff and we made the cool videos. We've done all those things. But essentially, this is what won't you be my neighbor is all about. It's all about learning how to love people well. I think that if there's one thing that I have learned being a part of our culture and really with all the media that has been stirred up lately, I realize that the world is trying to solve a hate problem with hate. And not across the board, and obviously that's an extreme statement, but as you look at the majority of the media, we realize that we're living in a world that so desires to be loved but at the same time doesn't necessarily want to make themselves vulnerable in order to love. And I've realized something, that in order for us to actually change, because this is what I know, is that we were all created to be a certain way. The Bible says in the book of Genesis that we've been created in the image and in the likeness of God, which means our truest nature, if you strip aside all the failures and the traumas and the issues and the problems, if you strip aside all those things, the core person of who we are is this loving, sacrificial person. But unless we intentionally interrupt our everyday behaviors— we end up living out of these masks or this realm that isn't actually our truest self. And if we're to look in scriptures, we realize that when Jesus is interacting with people, which he often did, and as he's talking to his disciples or talking to people that he interacted with, we realize that the Great Commission, or 
essentially Jesus's message or his reason for being is all about love. The Bible says that the Great Commission is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And I've come to discover from this passage that I think that a lot of the times why people don't have a strong ability to love others is because we don't love ourselves or we don't understand how to be loved or the situations in our life have told us, I think for the majority of people, that we actually are unlovable. And so when we look in scriptures, because like I said, we have to intentionally desire to be different. We have to intentionally take a season of time to really reset. Because if we just continue to to get caught in the current of culture, it's amazing how we can go months, years, for some people decades, without ever interrupting their behavior in order to bring a substantial change to their lives. And so when I look around, you know, we can use a lot of amazing examples because throughout history, there have been amazing people who have loved people groups well. I mean, you look back at people like David Brainerd, you look at people like Mother Teresa, and we realize there were these people that culture has celebrated simply because of their selfless love and affection toward a people group where they love someone even though there's nothing that that people group could do in order to deserve the love. But in our culture, we talked about it last night when we had a meeting in Buffalo, how so often our love comes with strings attached. My family, or really my parents, for example, are like this, is, is growing up, my parents would always know when I was looking to get something because to, when I was looking to get something, I all of a sudden became this extremely kind and generous person. You know, I would come around my mom and I would put my arm around her and I'd be like, oh, mom, how are you doing? You know, you look so nice today. And oh, how's it going? Is there anything that I can do for you? And after a while when I would exhibit this behavior, the very next thing that would come out of my mom's mouth would be, what do you want? Because she knew that this behavior, this love, came with strings attached. And so as I began to think about our greatest example, and probably the greatest example in human history to demonstrate love is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That Jesus was the greatest neighbor. When we look throughout history, he is the ultimate expression of love, grace, acceptance, forgiveness. We realize that through the stories that we hear and the parables that he tells is that Jesus's very nature is constrained by love. I love to think of it like this, that the only constraint that God has. God is infinite and omnipotent. He's all-knowing. He's in all places at the same time. That there's nothing that constrains what God can do except that God can do nothing except that it's first birthed out of love. And so when I want to understand what does it look like to exhibit or demonstrate this selfless love, what it looks like to actually be a neighbor to the people that I interact with in my everyday life, I want to look at Jesus. And here's the thing about Jesus that's so extraordinary, is that Jesus was God. And so if I was God coming down into physical body, 
I would have made myself kind of like Thor, right? Where I would have supernatural abilities to essentially just be better than everybody else. And I think that sometimes when we think about Jesus, whether we realize it or not, is that we can think that way, that we think about how Jesus was or how he interacted with people. And I've said this myself, well, he was Jesus. So, I mean, obviously he would do that nice thing. He was Jesus. But we know that the Bible tells us that, well, yes, he was fully God. He was also fully man. The Bible tells us that every struggle, everything that we go through, every difficulty, every trial, every trauma, that Jesus was familiar and had lived through every single thing that we had gone through. That just because he was God didn't mean that it was easy for him to love the people that he was around. That if Jesus also hadn't been intentional about being love, he could have, like each and every one of us, fallen into the trap of being offended or angry or bothered or isolated. And we talked last night when we were in Buffalo, like I said, we were talking about, you know, the love of Jesus, the love of God, how it compels us to action. That it's a love that goes beyond words. We used a scripture last night that talks about, you know, that you try to show me your faith without your works. And the Bible says that faith without works is dead. And so we understand that what the Bible is teaching us is that when we love our neighbor, it's beyond just a kind word. It's beyond just something, you know, the small that we would do. But when we're talking about the love of God, we realize that Jesus was constantly compelled to action. In fact, when you read about the amazing things that Jesus does, the miracles and casting out the demons, every amazing thing that Jesus ever did comes at the heels of this statement that he was moved with compassion. And so we realized something very clear about Jesus was that the love that Jesus had for people was something that drove him beyond just words. And I want to use this example this morning of John 13. Um, because I recently just read this passage of scripture, and when, I, I mean, I'm sure that I've read it, at least I hope that I had read it more than once. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'd read it more than once. But I read it this time, and something was different, uh, and it really challenged me, truthfully. And so we're going to read a couple of uh, verses, and so bear with me until we get to the very end. In verse 13, ch chapter 13, verse 1 says this, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Verse 2 says this, It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. This scripture, maybe you heard it the very first time, but as I read it the second time, I'm thinking to myself, this, is, this Jesus guy is extraordinary. Because we understand in this passage of scripture that Jesus ultimately already understands the course of action that's going to take place throughout these next, whatever it is, 72 hours of what he's going to go through. 
he already knows that Judas is getting ready to betray him. And Jesus's response, okay, check this out. Because how many, you ever notice this? Like, let's say when you hear that someone is talking negatively about you, and, bef- and, and you know that they've been talking about you, but they don't know that you know that they've been talking about you. It's kind of like when you walk in the same room as them, they're trying to be all like nice and lovey-dovey, and you just hit them hard with the cold shoulder, right? So that they know that you know that they've been talking about you. And that's just human nature, right? We don't have to try to do that. That's the way that everybody naturally would respond, but not Jesus. Imagine this. Jesus knows that he's about to be betrayed unto death. And he knows that the betrayer is in the room with him right now. But Jesus is so overwhelmed. Come on, this kind of love challenges us. He's so overwhelmed by the love. I mean, if it was me, the passage of scripture would have said that he washed the 11's feet and quickly passed over Judas. That's what it would have said if I was Jesus. But we see that Jesus is so moved with love and compassion that he, I would even imagine, I would venture to say that he spent and gave special attention to Judas's feet. And this kind of love challenges me. And so it says this, when Simon Peter came, or when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said unto him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus responded, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested. You will never wash my feet. And Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Then Simon, I love Peter, man. He's always like way over the top, right? And so then Simon Peter says this, then wash my hands and my feet as well. Lord, not just my feet, right? Because Simon is like super, or Peter is a super overachiever. And Jesus respond, replies and says, A person who is bathed all over does not need to be washed except for the feet to be, extreme, to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. And so we realize from this that Jesus knew what was going to happen, but still desired to wash Judas's feet regardless. And so we see this picture of Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, knelt down washing smelly, dirty, calloused feet. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, even for me to have Danielle wash my feet would be, it would definitely be a stretch. You know, it would be like, oh, this is, this is really, really strange. But we see here the Son of Man, like God himself knelt down washing these people's feet. Now you have to understand the context of what's happening here because really everything that Jesus does is so wildly confusing to the disciples. Because when you understand in the culture what washing your feet was, like now in church, it's kind of become this ceremonious thing that we do to show our devotion to the people that are around us. 
But this is not what it was in Jesus' day. In fact, what would typically happen would be, it would, it would be like the youngest girl slave in the house would be the person who would wash their feet. So what's essentially would have been the lowest of the lowest of the low. And this girl would have the responsibility to wash the people's feet as they walked in. And so the disciples, you have to imagine that they're wildly confused as to why Jesus is taking this position. Because in their minds, they're expecting that Jesus is going to be some sort of military some kind of political leader. That his kingdom is an earthly kingdom and his intention is to overthrow the Romans. And rightly so, because if Jesus wanted, he could have impressed people with his resume. I mean, you know, creator, sustainer, Sovereign Lord, King, Messiah, the great I am. I mean, he could have thrown around some pretty impressive titles. And this is the thing why men like Peter and James and John, right? Why they're so desperate to get around him because they're looking for positions of authority. But instead we see this beautiful picture of our Savior removing his clothing and acting like a slave. I mean, the man throughout history who's probably the most deserving of a title, of an office, of a throne, we see him choosing servant as his title and humility as his attitude. Jesus, the Son of God, the clearly the most important person in the room, begins to wash people's feet. I think that in this, what Jesus was doing, and we know that he says it in his ministry constantly, that the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. That the economy of God, the great, greatness in God's understanding or in his kingdom, his model, is shown through humility, through service, through sacrifice. And here's the thing, that we all, we all find ourselves in this room right now. We all sit here. We all listen to, won't you be my neighbor? We all read our Bibles and spend time with the Lord because our desire is to be like Jesus. And I know that each and every one of you, if I was to pull you all, you would all say that, yes, absolutely. I want to be known as a person of love and humility. I want to be known as a person who sacrifices, a person who would give their all for the people that are around them. But I've realized something in my own life, and as I interact with the people that are around me, that our desire to be great in the eyes of people around us or in the eyes of culture can often become a stumbling block for us. And I began to think about this question because we're going to take a second now, and we're just going to talk about the season that we're in right now, which is Teshuvah. And I began to think to myself, I, I recently had my birthday, and so I, I like to spend the season being reflective of, you know, who I am and what my year has been. And I began to think to myself and ask myself these questions, like, what would happen if the people who claimed to follow Jesus actually followed Jesus' example? 
that we lay, would lay down our titles, our positions, our postures, our influence, and what would it look like for the body of Christ to overwhelmingly carry the attitude of love, acceptance, and service. That instead of being known as judgmental and hypocritical, as authoritarian, what would a church look like if it looked like Jesus? If it looked like people who were willing to go the extra mile, people who were willing to go into places and serve people who honestly didn't deserve to be served. Now, I got to tell you something. This isn't something to feel shame about. And please, if you're feeling condemnation, just shrug that thing off right now because it by no means am I trying to shame or condemn you. What I'm trying to draw our attention to is that there are seasons and times in our life where I believe God sets things in motion for us to be reflective about the people that we are. Because one of the things that I know is that when we read about people like Jesus, or you hear a story about Mother Teresa, or you read about someone who does something great, we just went by 9-11, you hear the stories of the firemen and the policemen who were willing to run in and sacrifice their very lives to save people. We're all inspired by these stories. It's as if the nature in those people resonates with us because I was actually created to be this way. But I've realized something. Sometimes this nature, this true nature on the inside of me can get lost in the complexity of life, the busyness, the wife, the kids, the job, the cars, the mortgage, the debts, the bills. That we could get so overwhelmed and bogged down by the things that we're experiencing in life that systematically so many of us lose touch with the actual nature of who we are. The hurts, the pains, the disappointments, the betrayals, the backstabbings. Things that slowly shift us and change us and cause us to put walls up and change the external image of who we were created to be. Because I love what it says about Jesus as he's talking to people. He says that he's the visible image, the visible representation of the invisible God. That what Jesus was saying is that you don't even have to worry about trying to figure out who God is. If you simply just take a look at me, you'll understand him and his nature. And this complexity, right, of us losing grips with ourselves has really been happening from the very beginning, which I think is always why the Jewish calendar and the Jewish people who are outstanding. And I had an opportunity to spend time in Israel. I'm not going to go into that because you've all heard a lot of the stories. And we'll continue for probably the rest of my preaching career to hear about Israel. So get comfortable. But I realized something is that their culture, their, I mean, they're one of the smallest people groups. But they've been able to withstand such tremendous hate and turmoil. And not just survive, but thrive. I mean, when you talk about New York City and some of the most, the wealthiest people in the world, you're talking about Jewish people. And I believe that's because they 
follow the, the Jewish calendar. And not that there's something magical about following the Jewish calendar, but I've realized something about the Jewish calendar is that it's amazing how God sets aside these specific times in our life to be reflective about the people who we actually are. And that's what this season is all about, the season of Teshuva. And essentially what Teshuva is, I mean, you could get real deep in it. I watched, I got real deep in like a YouTube black hole of Jewish rabbis talking about, at one point I'm reading subtitles of a rabbi who's talking in Hebrew, trying to understand what exactly it is. Good luck if you want to go on there. It's a real deep hole, trust me. But when we talk about Teshuva, essentially what I gathered is that it's a time, it's 40 days of reflection. In fact, if you were to translate Teshuva, a lot of people talk about it as repentance, but they say that, that saying it's a time of repentance is, it's not fully encapsulating what this season is about. They said it's better to use the word to return. And what they say Teshuvah is all about is that it's a time that we return to our original state where we take 40 days and get rid of the noise, get rid of the worries and the fears and the anxieties and all the things that has had the ability throughout the year to bog us down and cause us to forget about our true nature. Teshuvah is 40 days where we put down our phones and we get off of social media and not because there's things that's wrong with them, but we just want to clear ourselves of all the stuff and incubate myself in a period of time with the Lord so I could be truly reflective of the person that I am. And this is what the feast is all about. It was actually a time, its express purpose is 40 days that we would spend to reflect who we are, where we are, and what we want. All with the culmination at the end of the 40 days, which I believe is October the 8th and 9th, is Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. Which is essentially, it's a day of like repentance, but it's also a day of celebration. It's essentially a time where we've spent 40 days being very reflective and it's kind of the day where we make our decision of, maybe this was who I was, but from this moment forward, this is who I'm going to be. It's said in the Jewish tradition that what you allow to come through Yom Kippur has the authority or the ability to affect your life from that point forward. And so when Jewish people go through the season of Teshuvah, it's a very serious season because they understand that I only want to carry forward the things that I actually want to manifest in my life. It's a time of determination for them of what is it that I want to carry forward. Now, obviously, we aren't Jewish. I'm not standing up here to try to convert you to Judaism. We understand that in the New Covenant... We have the right or the ability to do this at any time. But I've realized something. Since it isn't mandatory for us, it's funny how we don't do it. I've realized something, that instead of trying to figure it out on my own, I want to jump onto something that I know has thousands of years of proof that it's already working. And so this evening, with 40 seconds left,
I want to challenge us. We're actually a lot of the way through. We're probably halfway through it already, and so it's probably only have 20 days or so at this point, maybe 25 days. But I want to challenge you to spend the rest of this time, even spend a week, in an honest place of reflection of who you are. And not just reflecting on who you are, but come out of your season of reflection with a plan on how you're going to accomplish or become the person who you desire to be. It said that Teshuva is a time where we resensitize ourselves to the Lord. Where we get rid of all of our comforts, we get rid of all of our conveniences, all of our distractions, and we intentionally spend time with God. We determine the people we want to be, what we want to take through to the new year, and instead of simply being who we've always been, we determine who is it that we want to be in the future. So Heavenly Father, Lord, we accept the challenge to be the people who you have destined us to be. Lord, where culture and systems, where structures and religions and things have had this crazy ability to steer us and shift us and mold us and society and systems. Lord, we're asking as we spend this time with you, God, that you would center us, that you'd bring us back to the center of who we actually are. That as we strip away all the stuff and the ideas and the fears and the worries and the traumas and our desire to impress people or to put our best foot forward, as we get rid of all those things and we just allow ourselves to be real, naked, open, vulnerable with you, as we do those things, Lord, our desire is that you would create in us, that you would express through us the visible image of the invisible God. That as we be the neighbors to the people that are around us, that it would be a demonstrative demonstration, a display of the bigness and the love and acceptance of the God that we serve. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray your life was impacted by the service and that you were able to feel the tangible love of Jesus fill whatever space you're listening from. Maybe you found this message and you've never had the opportunity to come into a personal relationship with Jesus, or you've known about him but have been far from him. We want to give you the opportunity to make his love a daily reality in your life. Jesus came to this earth and died on a cross so that you and I could be close to him. He wanted to wipe away every disappointment and bring you into a life of purpose and meaning, one that will impact this globe for good. So if you'd like to begin this journey with Jesus today, then repeat the simple prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I'm praying this prayer because I know that I've made mistakes and have been living without you. I apologize and I trust that you will forgive me. I accept your love and grace and ask that you would be my Lord and Savior. Help me believe in you and love you every day. Help me to show the world what you're like and how great your love is. I commit to live for you from this moment forward. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All of our Light City family are joining with heaven and celebrating over the commitment you just made to have Jesus as the Lord of your life. We have resources available for you to help you on this journey, but most of all, we're praying for you. Send us a note at info at golightcity.com to let us know about the decision you've made today. We have resources we'd love to send you uh, with some easy steps on how to go from here so that you can discover God in a real and meaningful way. If you have a prayer request, our team would love to connect with you and partner with you to see God transform your life. God bless you, and we look forward to hearing from you soon.